Welcome to Word is Truth. We're continuing where we left off in our service. It is 5-1-2022, and we're going to continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Ready for me? Yes. Okay. It's the thought of the week. Okay, give me a second. Sure. Take your time. All right. When it comes to our righteousness, standing before God, many of us try to match what Christ did by their works and commitment after salvation. Righteousness is an important part of our salvation because it speaks of our standing before a holy God. When it comes to salvation, Christ, Christ completely satisfied God on our behalf, whether it is regarding sin or unrighteousness. Therefore, the justice of God declares that we are justified. So I'm not saying because I have lived some kind of holy life, no matter what happens in my life, the Father always approves of Christ in whom I stand. Just as I could not do anything when I was in Adam, I cannot do anything to change my status in Christ. None of us are worthy of salvation. It is by grace. None of us deserve salvation because we are in some way special. There is no one righteous, not even one. How did we get in Adam in the first place? We were born. Wow, this is always something. We're born in Adam, and all of us, all of his negative properties were inherited. How did we get to be in Christ? We were born in Christ. We are born again, and in Christ, when we believe in him to save us. Now, all of the positive properties are inherited, eternal life, righteousness, justification, salvation. So let us review this once more. Christ's earned righteousness is our righteousness standing before God. We know that salvation is not by work. And this righteousness is not earned by us. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. Then God declares that we are justified forever. Seems to me that Christ is exactly what we needed, a saver, who did everything to save us from our condition in Adam. It's funny I read this story of the week because as I spoke to our pastor, um, I was going through a lot of problems of my job about exactly the same verse, besides other things, stuff. And well, we have our study on Romans in chapter uh, Wednesday. It's funny when you talk about the law. A lot of people believe that you must miss the law and Christ at the same time, but it's not true. The law don't bring us to salvation. It brings us to the place of condemnation. No one has ever been saved by the works of the law. Because we know that the works of the law we're not saved. It's only by faith in Christ that we're saved. It's for grace we have been saved through faith. 
It is not coming from myself. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that we shouldn't boast. If God the Father believes that we could be saved by the law, like I spoke to God about this in chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 2, they mean Christ died for nothing. So if we just pass about salvation, if God the Father judged Christ on our behalf on the cross for three hours, salvation was completed. So we're saved only through faith in Christ by believing in him. So this is what I get out of the order of the week. And this time, I'd like to return over to the white who will give us in prayer. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, before I start with the prayer, does anybody have any specific requests? The of course, I'll be keeping everybody's yeah. families in prayer. Go ahead. Yes, yeah. yeah, especially my family, also my daughter, and I just found out my niece also has some kind of condition also. So let's keep her and her in prayer, too. Her name is also Talia Sneed, along with my daughter. Okay. The, the Evans family as well lost um, their, my cousin lost her son this week, last week actually. Okay. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to reach across the miles, many miles, uh, using the electronics available in our time to connect in a deep and meaningful way to look at the deep things of God, your thoughts that have been revealed to us by the very spirit that you have given us freely. I pray for what is true church on this call and also anybody who has been affiliated with this church. Um, may we continue to be focused on our mission on earth. And I pray for the church's mission as well as our personal mission. Uh, we are sojourners here, and that we, but we're here for a reason. This is a battlefield um, in which we have been equipped by the word of God to defend not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I pray for the church worldwide and persecution um, that exists. And um, we understand that there's a struggle that everyone has to maintain consistency um, in their uh, focus on the on the body of Christ and in God's word to us, um, just because there are so many lies and distractions in this world. At the same time, let us rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, upon hearing the word of God and, and those that we have this privilege to speak uh, with about the word of God. But let us also weep with those who weep, understanding that there is grieving and loss in this world. And I pray specifically for Dave's daughter and niece, um, also the Evans family and the Myers family, um, all of whom are, are suffering uh, losses in this world. Um, there's a staggering amount of challenges in this world, which is to say that this battlefield is against the, the power of the air. There are health challenges, financial challenges, natural disasters, social uprisings, wars, oppression, human trafficking, and ugly lies spread about Christ in the church and so on. Yet let us remember we all, as believers, are not um, of this world. 
our citizenship is in heaven, and we implore others to believe and trust in Jesus Christ for their soul salvation, where they will never perish. And may we and our pastor, Doug Presley, be instruments in the gracious hands of God. Um, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Dwight. We certainly appreciate that. Um, we are moving forward in our um, service. We're, we're on the verse in John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So you should have some notes. And in your notes, these are verses that say so much with so few words. Our verse is certainly among them. In nine words, we have God's view of what it is to live the Christian way of life. So many are trying to define the way we should live in this world, in the world. And this verse goes and gives us the bottom line. This is not the only verse to consider. There are many others for sure. We, and that is the Word is Truth Christian Church, have been a church now for 21 years. And this verse gave us our marching orders from the start. We continue to cherish the thoughts this verse inspires to this day. And over the years, the many years, I can say that we certainly have kept the same thought uh, with some new things as we have come to learn more about the Word of God. But this verse continues to ring true for, for us. And as we try to dig into it, I know there's a lot of notes here, but uh, we'll see how far we get. There's no rush. We'll take our time. So the first thought, we're going to try to break it down. Sanctify them. So the word sanctify comes from a Greek word, hagiadzo, to, uh, to render or acknowledge or to be venerable or hallow, hallow, to separate from profane things to, de to and dedicate to God, right? There it is, separate from profane things and dedicate to God. And there are many meanings here, but uh, you're going to see... Um, in context, what Christ is saying. To consecrate things to God. To dedicate people to God. Puri to purify. To cleanse externally. To purify by exp expiation. Free from guilt, the guilt of sin. To purify internally by renewing of the soul or the mind, I could say. And that came from Thayer. And point B, the word... the really oh i see an error in the notes not the only one that you might ever find but i'm just pointing it out it should be the this word it shouldn't say this world it should be this word so correct your notes if you can this word comes from the root word hagias which is the word we get for holy sacred physically pure morally blameless or religious ceremonially, ceremonially 
consecrated, uh, most holy, one one thing, or saint, the word saint. Actually, we are called holy ones, and which is an old English term for saint they came up with. But when you look at uh, the Greek, when it talks about we are holy, the, the word there is hagias. And so we're holy ones or saints. So point C, let's put it all together. So we are to be consecrated, dedicated to God, obviously for his use and purpose. To be separate from the world. Now think about it. What are we separated from? I like this first definition to render or, or to separate from profane things and dedicate to God. So that is literally what we are. We are separated from the world and consecrated to God. When we say we're separated from the world, it goes far beyond us thinking uh, that we are, don't belong to the world. It goes to what God has done to make us separate from the world. Ooh. To say we're separate from the world is uh, can be used a lot of different ways, especially by Christians. Some Christians are like, well, we shouldn't participate in godless things, you know, sexual immorality, you know, drunkenness and all, you know, all the things that are happening in the world, drug addiction. We got to separate from those things. But there's a lot more. When we say we're not of this world, this is not because of our behavior to do things. It is because of the work of God, what he has done in the baptism of the spirit, which literally takes us out of Adam. And Adam is associated with this world and unites us to the person of Christ, and we are a new creation in Christ. So something completely different than what we were previously. So we're, we hail from somewhere else. We don't belong down here. There's a lot more that can be said and has been said already. So, so that is how we put those definitions together when we are trying to understand what it means when Jesus prayed, sanctify them. Point D, when we are saved and receive Christ's righteousness, we are positionally holy and sanctified. So this, <clears throat> we have to understand positionally is how God views things. You can almost see it as when you see a little baby born, that baby you could say is positionally an adult, a, a person who is in this world. Well, he's in this world, but he's not all that he's ever going to be. And if you've ever been around babies, you know they grow fast. They don't stay babies for long. Before you know it, they're walking and running, and then next thing you know, they're adults. And you say, wow, whatever happened to the time? Uh, when that would, they were just such a little baby, and they couldn't even move, couldn't roll over even. So in one sense... We see the baby, but within that baby is the makings of everything that is an adult. And the same way, when God sees us as Christians, as newborn babes in Christ, He recognizes that you know who we who we potentially will be in Christ, and that is positionally what He sees us as, as those united to the person of Christ, and. Uh, all of it depends on the finished work of Christ. So we are positionally holy. Well, why are we holy? Sanctified. All this is 
is part of what God has pronounced us to be, even as babies. He sees us as, as, as it were, we were adults. But he is praying for our salvation. All right, so, um, so let's read that whole thing again. When we are saved and receive Christ's righteousness, we are positionally holy and sanctified. But he is not praying for our salvation. This is Jesus. He is not praying for our salvation. Why do I say not praying for our salvation? Because when he's praying for the disciples, they are already saved. Uh, so it's not a matter of, well, Father, Jesus praying to the Father. Father, sanctify them, meaning save them. He's not praying for their salvation. He's praying for the part where they grow into what God has called them to. So it's not salvation. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 just to see the statement. Uh, or 1, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. He says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, hagias, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's their Lord and ours. So it's a greeting, but in this greeting, there's quite a bit here. He says to, the, to, to, to those in Corinth. Now, if we just go a couple of chapters later, he says, I could not uh, write unto you, <laughs> but let's just read it uh, since I'm right there. Uh, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, which is a couple of chapters later. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants. But notice, they are in Christ. So you got a mix here of, yeah, Corinthians. Uh, if you read uh, chapter 1, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. They are sanctified. So when Christ is praying to sanctify them, Obviously, here we're seeing, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're seeing positionally they're sanctified. But as you read in 1 Corinthians 3, you would say they need some sanctifying, for sure. He says, I gave you milk, verse, this is 2, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So, these are the same people he just said were sanctified, called to be holy. Well, this is what God's intention for them to walk in, but it is true of them as well. So what do we have? How do we see that? We see that in theology as they're positionally uh, holy and sanctified, but experientially God is bidding them to walk in who they really are to fulfill what God has already done in them experientially. So this is a hard concept. I remember I didn't understand that concept, and I sort of, whenever I read something, I just, I, I assumed everything was experiential. But I understand that positionally God can say, yeah, you're sanctified, you're holy, you're saved. But on the other hand, we could act in ways that don't, uh, that don't complement those things. We're not worthy of, you could say, well, we're certainly not worthy of salvation. We're certainly not worthy of being called holy ones. Uh, 
sanctified in Christ and all that. We could say that, but really God sees us. All that happens through the work of God. It doesn't happen through our works. Experientially, God wants us to experience what he has already done for us. And there are means by which we do that. There are means that he has provided, the, the word of truth, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, all of that, you know, God's ways of helping us come to the understanding of who we are in Christ, uh, the powers that God has given us, the assets that he has given us to grow up in this world, and how we are to utilize them. This, this is for every believer. This is not for some. This is for every believer in Christ. We are, the moment we're saved, we receive the righteousness of God. And all, God recognizes that we are forgiven all of our sins. Even though our sins are already, God is satisfied with the work of Christ on our behalf. It is not until we believe in Christ that we are said to be reconciled or forgiven of all of our sins. So, that forgiveness means we are reconciled to God. So, God, all the boxes for us are checked. God says, well, they're righteous. Their sins have been propitiated. So, they are, in my point of view, justified forever. The work of Christ on our behalf allows us, for God to say, justified forever. If there was one sin that we committed that Christ didn't die for, didn't pay for, then we could not be justified. If there was one act of unrighteousness that we had in us that God is using for our, our standing before him, he would say, nope, you, you can't be justified. Certainly can't be justified. And so... God, once those boxes are checked, righteousness, sins propitiated and forgiven, reconciled to God, justified forever. That's what we are. So, so those are things. You could even say, here's a good example of positionally speaking uh, about how we, we are to conduct ourselves. We are righteous the moment we believe in Christ. And you can read... Romans 3 for that, Romans three nineteen through 23. We're righteous the moment we believe in Christ. It's imputed righteousness, just like Abraham received. God looks at us and says, righteous. And then further, just like we just talked about, he says, justified. So Christ's righteousness, all of that. But then God does bid us to walk in righteousness. He wants us to, to conduct ourselves ourselves in a way in the way of righteousness he doesn't want us to just uh yeah you're positionally righteous which is good for your salvation and and your reconciliation to god but as far as you living in this world he wants you to learn how to walk in the truth of which you stand so so he teaches you his ways he teaches you how to conduct yourself in this world and those are how what we would say experiential righteousness. Now, a lot of people will say, if you don't have experiential righteousness, in other words, if you don't behave as those who are saved, then you're not saved. Because you need that experiential righteousness to prove to God that you somehow are worthy of this salvation. 
<laughs> it, doesn't, it really doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction when salvation is not of ourselves. It's not, not by works done in righteousness. It's, it's not by works lest any man should boast. I mean, you don't have anything to say. God is saying, don't even open your mouth to me about your salvation. You can't say anything about it because it's not of you. It didn't come from you. It comes from my son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work. All you did was believe on him. And that's it. So positionally, yeah, we're righteous the moment we believed in Christ. And you could say that about the Corinthians. Yeah, they were righteous, all right. However, experientially, they were going in the wrong direction. So Paul has to write this. And he has to tell them, look, yeah, you guys are babies in Christ. And even though you're saved and you have all that, you're not growing. You're not progressing in the Christian life. Now, if you don't progress in the Christian life, if you don't, if you don't follow God's ways and do what God wants you to do in a Christian way of life, then God does not take away your salvation. That would be another contradiction. Right? He says, on the one hand, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It's not even about you. It's not by your works. But on the other hand, he's saying, well, if you don't have works, then we're going to have to call you on the carpet for that. No, no. either it's by works and you got to do them, or it's free and a gift given in grace. Which is it? It's free. Now, if you do have experiential righteousness in this world, you do follow God's game plan for the church and this age, and you get to the judgment seat of Christ, God's going to evaluate the things done while in the body. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Then, uh, it says that you will receive a reward. Right? And that's important, right? So if you did work, and, and, and the, when we say the, the, the operative word here is you worked, but really God the Holy Spirit influenced you to do those works because you had no clue as to what God's works are. God the Holy Spirit not only enlightens you, but he empowers you to walk in truth so that you do work in truth. And what, God, what does God do at the end of, of it all? He says, well... For your cooperation, your humility, and cooperating with me to grow you up in Christ, I will reward you. How gracious. It's not only a salvation, a gift in his grace, but then he provides all the means necessary for us to grow in grace and get to the place of a mature status quo. And then he rewards us for it, our cooperation in that. That's Talk about grace through and through. Now, you can't fail salvation by, by not doing works, but you can fail the Christian way of life by not growing up, by not becoming mature, by refusing to allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you into all truth. You can fail in that regard, and then you will not receive rewards for service. I don't spend an extra time on this, but hopefully just a little review for some but but we just want to make sure we understand this positional experiential uh part of what we're we're trying to talk about sanctification here so i just gave you the example of the corinthians how they god says they're sanctified called to be holy all that but in practice and experience <laughs> they needed some work uh, let's just say they they got they had problems 
So let's continue. Point E in our notes. Jesus is praying that the Father will sanctify them, which includes us, right? We already know from John 17, 20, he says, I'm not just praying for them alone. He's also praying for those who would believe in Christ through uh, the disciples' message. So he's talking about us as well in that. So sanctify them is not just for the disciples, it's for us too. And his prayer is not for salvation. We just have to keep that in mind. It is not for salvation because because the disciples were already saved when he's saying to them, sanctify them. In other words, set them apart, consecrate them in this world unto you. But, but how we are, it's not about salvation, but how we arrange, we are to arrange our lives as believers in this world before the Father. So a couple of scriptures I'd like to, to bring out. And one is 1 Corinthians 6, 11. I think we're already in 1 Corinthians, so just go over to 6 and verse 11. Now he's, he just told the, the Corinthians... Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, idolaters, or, or adulterers, or men who have sex with men, or nor thieves, or greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were, here it is, sanctified. That happened at the moment they were saved. Obviously, they were not following uh, God's standard of what it would mean to be sanctified. But they are sanctified. Why? Because it's by grace. You were justif- and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And why do you think Paul had to remind the Corinthians of these things? Because in their experience, they were allowing these things to take it holds sway in their lives to take precedence in their lives they were doing the very things that they were saved from so Paul is admonishing them to live a life that is in cooperation with the calling that they have received they were those things but they are now sanctified and justified all of those things are positional that he's saying in, in 1 Corinthians 6.11. They're positional. That's the truth about them. That's how God sees them. However, as far as their walk is concerned, they needed some work. As we, were going to, we said earlier, they needed some work. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 says... It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, so you're getting the sense of sanctified uh, positionally, sanctified experientially. And by the context, you can already see what is actually meant here. In this verse, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, knowing that they're already sanctified, what does he mean, should be sanctified? Well, then he goes into a couple things that they should be aware of. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not like passionate, not in passionate lust like the pagans 
who do not know God. So again, what is God talking about here? He's talking about their experience in the world. And it's God's will that they be sanctified, right? That is the will of God. Remember, to be sanctified experientially does not bear on our salvation at all. Our salvation bears only on the work of Christ on our behalf. If we allow God the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us to sanctification in this world, then at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be rewarded for allowing God to use us on the battlefield. We'll be rewarded for that. Reward is not the same as salvation. Some people will be saved and not receive a reward. Some people will be saved and will receive a reward. So we, we have to, it, but either way, salvation is not in question. So, you know, it's, it, I, it's terrible that I have to say this, even. Because as soon as people see works, their mind just automatically switches to, well, if you don't do these things, you'll be lost. If you don't do, if you don't uh, do these works or stay away from these things, you'll be lost. When that is not what God is saying at all. There's two things going on here. Salvation and the experience of living in this world, what we might call the Christian way of life. One, God saves us positionally. We're sanctified. We're righteous. All of that. We're justified. And our experience is we have to, God is saying, live up to what I've done for you. Live up to it. Right? Walk in the way that... Uh, that is befitting for someone who is sanctified. Hopefully, uh, so those two scriptures illustrate some of that as well. And I think it's an important distinction because of the confusion that is in the world today. Point F, we are not of this world because we have been chosen out of it. Now think about that. We are not, why are we not of this world? Because we act a certain way? Because we, we, uh, we decided that certain things in this world are bad, and then if we stay away from those things, then that shows that we're not of this world. No, we're not of this world because of the work of God. We have to stop focusing our attention on our works. We have to focus our attention on the work of God. When it comes to salvation, that's what you got to do. you got to look away from yourself and look at what Christ has done. And once you understand he's the savior of the world, he paid for all of the sins and he lived a righteous life and all of this is for us, we believe in him. We trust the matter of our soul salvation to Christ. And the Bible says, if we do that, we're saved eternally. We have eternal life. And that, that's one thing to note. We can't change that truth. It doesn't, doesn't change by the fact that God does have expectations of us as Christians. It does not change. We, he, he can have expectations of us, but he will never condemn us with the world, says 1 Corinthians 11. So this is important for us to note. Um, and so we're, in, we're not of this world because we have been chosen out of it. That's the reason why. We're not in this, of this world. And because of that, we should walk accordingly. Okay, so, so when we read, this is just an example, just like we talk about, talked about with the world. We're not of this world. Well, people, 
that that is a result of the baptism of the Spirit. So, but position so experientially, First John five. We read this last week, so we won't. No, it's First John two. Did I put five there? I hope I didn't. Now, yeah, two fifteen through seventeen. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If any, anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So you can read the rest, but the idea is we are told directly not to love or commit to or be devoted to this world. It is not uh, reflective of the Father's plan for us. We have to recognize we're in this world, this evil is going to be destroyed and and uh, all the systems are coming from its ruler, Satan. He is the one who's designed this world to cause, uh, to be in rebellion to God and his authority. So we are not, as believers, certainly not to walk according to the things of this world or to be devoted or love this world because it doesn't reflect the Father's plan for us. And we are expected to love the Father and love Christ because they have the plan for us in this age and what we're supposed to be thinking and doing. So there's another example of even though positionally we're chosen out of the world, experientially, what does that mean? How do we translate that? We are not to love the world or the things in the world. And he goes on further in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So... Point G in our notes. We are positionally sanctified because of salvation's righteousness. Positionally sanctified. So automatically we can already know that comes from salvation because of salvation's righteousness. And our walk should reflect, it should, it, it, it doesn't always. If you look in the example of Scripture, believers don't always do what they're supposed to do. God has to chide believers. He has to encourage them. He has to rebuke them. Right? All of that is true. But they should reflect what God has already done in the glorified Christ in this age. So, interesting to note, there is standard a standard of conduct in the church. It is not just, well... You're saved by grace that is not of yourselves. is a gift of God. You don't have to do any works whatsoever. It's not by works done in righteousness. So do whatever you want. God is saying, do it. No, he's not saying that. People read those scriptures about grace and they're incensed because they want to show God that they uh, are dedicated and do have works and want to conform their life. So they don't like grace. Because they say, oh, that makes you think you don't have to do anything. I want to do something, they're saying. But that's not how it goes. Grace is God's way for us to receive salvation. It's the only way. Grace through faith. We have to, for faith makes us look away from ourselves. So if we're looking away from ourselves, we're certainly not looking at our works. We're not looking at the law. We're looking at the just condition we're born in Adam and we're realizing that there is nothing we can do there's none righteous not even one so our walk should I say reflect what God has already done in the glorified Christ in this age so Romans 6 3 is clear about that it talks about us let's just read it 
6.3, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This new kainos life, never before seen, unprecedented life, is the resurrection life of Christ. We're supposed to live that on earth. And even though we haven't received our resurrection bodies yet, the life we are to live, the Holy Spirit will be reproducing in us, is the resurrection life of Christ. There's this new life that we have. So notice 6.3, or do you not know? Are you ignorant of this? Maybe people don't know this because um, we are dead. So positionally speaking, right? We, we were buried with him through baptism, right? And that we're baptized into, into his death. We are separated from the life that we had in Adam, where the sin nature was our master. It dominated us. We're separated from that. And now we have a new life. So it's important for us to see that, how important that is. It's here, I'll read Ephesians 4 in this regard. 20 through 24. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. says... That however, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. He's talking about what we did when we had the sin nature ruling over us. Lost, lost all sensitivity, giving themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. Uh, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. Notice you had to learn it. It's not something that all of a sudden there was this... Uh, there was this dump of information, and now you're just supposed to know this information. You had to learn this information. And I find in Christian circles, they expect that once you believe in Christ, automatically you just got this unction to follow God, to do what God wants you to do, and you just will do it. And if you don't, then you probably something was wrong with the way you believed in the first place. You just will follow after God, because that's who you are now. No, this is what you have to learn. And this is what's not taught, that there is a learning curve here. Now, again, some people will not learn. They will not choose to learn. What will happen if you don't? And we're going to just hold our finger right there on the verse. I'm jumping around a little bit. So if you don't learn, right, it's God's will for us to grow up, right? So to verse 12, to equip God's people for his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So there, God wants us to grow up. That's now. Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants. Here it is, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So there, there you have it. That's what happens when you don't choose to grow up. Right? That's not a good place to be. So where were we? We were in Ephesians 4.21. It says, when you heard about Christ. That is not, however, the way of life, verse 20, that you learned. When you heard about Christ and were, what, taught in him, 
in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So a lot of people have not been taught. They are ignorant of the facts of what God has done and called them to or who they are in Christ and all of that. Now, it doesn't mean that just because, uh, you know, they have been taught these things that they still don't have the volition to do what is not fitting or what God has not called them to. Yeah, they can. They have that, uh, you know, that latitude because whether or not we grow up in Christ is optional. I'm not, I know I say it's optional. I am not saying that I approve that, you know, you should have, have it any way you want. I'm saying you can, though, choose to not grow up in Christ and still be saved. That is a reality of grace. I mean, the Bible doesn't say you had to have any works for salvation. None. So that means it's a gift. It's free. It doesn't cost us anything. And money is not in view, but works are. So the fact that we don't have any uh, works for salvation, uh, but then yet, in order to grow up, it does require that we allow God the Spirit to use us. So here you are. It says you were taught with regard to, this is verse uh, 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind, your thinking. And to, so you've got to come to this new thought and to put on the new self created to be like God and true righteousness and holiness. So we're talking experiential here, not positional. Well, experiential, what's involved? You've got to learn. It, so this whole thing about, you know, you come to church and... You just had a grand old time, you know. Oh, we sang and we danced and we just praised him. And oh my gosh, we walked out. We were filled up with emotion. That's not the picture that we're getting here. It's not the picture that Jesus presented when he said that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will, well, I got much more to tell you. Much more than you can now bear. But the spirit of truth is going to come. And what, what, who is he? The spirit of truth. He's going, there's a lot of information that you've got to learn. That you've got to be taught to understand who, who God is and what is the way of life. What is he made of us? Who are we in Christ? And what we really need is more of a classroom type situation, not a place where we just come and just overwhelmed with emotion. That is not what the Spirit influences us to be, emotional. It influences us to come to the knowledge of the truth, to, to give, to be that very thing that Christ said the Holy Spirit would be, the Spirit of truth. Yeah. We're finding a lot of things going on in churches today that don't reflect this information. So let's finish out the verse. So it's to be verse 23 again, to be, be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. That's the new self is the person, the new person who is not driven by all those things Gentiles were driven by, as we read earlier. 
but it's to be having the right mind, having the new information in your mind, and to be able to put on that new mind to the new self, and to conduct yourself in ways that are befitting for those who are believers in this age, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So it continues, it continues, and it, all of this has to do with how to experience what God has already done. He has already called us to these things. How can we experience that? So this is our, this is our, our quest here is in this life, is to grow up, to come to the full knowledge of the truth. This is our quest. And back to our notes, in point H, if we are to consecrate, or to be consecrated, or dedicated, or set apart from this world for God, the Father's purposes, if, if all of that's going to happen for us, it has to be defined. And our verse, I like our verse because it literally does define all of these things for us. Right? Sanctify them by the truth or by means of the truth. And this is where we're headed to in point number two, by the truth. Let's dig into a little bit of this. Whether we get to the rest of it or not, it's not important, but the whole objective here is just try to understand what is being said in this verse. Truth, aletheia. Now, <laughs> it's interesting. I looked at two different dic dictionaries, Greek dictionaries for strong and there. You probably know those are the two I depend on. And both of them had very varying things about this word. Well, most strong only had a few words about it. There had a lot. And I didn't even copy and paste all of that there had. I just sort of copied some of it. I copied the objective part. But truth, oh my gosh, it's varied. So uh, what, what does Thayer say? What is true in any matter under consideration? What is true? Truly, in truth, according to truth, of a truth, in, rea in reality, in fact, certainty. Certainly, rather what is true in things appertaining or pertaining to God and the duties of man, moral and religious truth in the greatest latitude. Uh, the true notions of God, which are open to human reason without his supernatural invention, intervention, without his supernatural intervention. So interesting how... Um, there is trying to cover all the bases where strong just said oh truth what it, that which is true a verity or something but there tries to give all the shades of meaning here that are found about truth so this is and I, I'd say it's a good way to, to, to look at the fullness of it um, and if you do have a chance to read more please do if you have the uh, there because it goes into what subjectively, not just objectively. They, they even go into more depth than Strong does. Point B, there are many more definitions of truth today. Many more. 
And when I say that, subjectively speaking, especially what Eastern philosophy teaches. So if we think about what truth is today, we, really, we have to define it because um, many people have defined truth in various ways, especially, as I say, what Eastern philosophy teaches. And why, what do I mean by that? Truth is what you think truth is. That's the Eastern philosophy. They're, you can't judge people based on what they say is truth because it may be truth for them, but it's not truth for you. So there is no objective standard of truth. Truth can be manipulated by what the person believes to be true or thinks or feels is true. So truth is not um, an objective reality, a, a certainty, it is, it can't be, it's not a fact. It is clay in your hands. You can say what truth is based on whatever you want to mold it to. So, so this is important to understand. And we approach, uh, sanctify them, and then by the truth. Because it can't just be whatever we think it is. It can't just be, oh, well, well, truth depends on my view my version of truth. And unfortunately, the Eastern philosophy is very popular because people don't want to be wrong about things. You know, Bible, like it says, the word of God is good for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Those are words that require humility in us to receive. We can't receive truth until we have those things. Well, truth is going to be something that is maybe not what you believed. And then you're going to have to change the way you think about things. You may, it may be that for you. But notice, truth comes and is not common to us. It is foreign to us. So, um, and there's all kinds of ways truth is used today. I mean, there's, <clears throat> especially in the modern day. Social media, people talking about that's truth. Truth is not what just what is apparent. Like if you say, "Is it raining?" and a person looks outside and says, "No," that is not the truth that God is talking about. Is it light? Is it daytime? Yes, that's truth. No, that's not the truth God is talking about. Those are obviously things that are true if we use truth from the subjective standpoint. A person can say, yeah, but it's, it's dark there, but it's, it's daylight there, but it's not daylight where I am. Not my truth. See, so truth is not relative. It is absolute when it comes to God. He's when he speaks. So I'm giving my definition, point C, of by the truth or what is truth. Is truth is the reality of God as revealed in the Word of God, and that's the 66 books we're dealing with, which is revealed through successive dispensations and is drastically different from man's view of truth. So, that's a lot of words, but hopefully it covers what truth is. And we'll just go through quickly. It's, it's the reality of God. So when we say God is telling us truth, he's telling us from his perspective, what he sees. And 
and it could be what he requires of man. It, it, so it is revealed in the 66 books. I know there are, there are some churches, organizations, who have in, in their canon more books than the 66 books that I'm referring to, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New, which is revealed through successive dispensations. So we are uh, conscious to the fact that God uh, has brought about different time periods where he is ruling over uh, in certain ways. And not all dispensations are the same. And it's drastically different from man's view. Isaiah 58, 8, 55, 8 and 9 does cover that. Um, let's just do this. Go in, I'm going to read Isaiah 55. 8 and 9, which we have read many times, but I want to read it today as we're talking about truth. We said it's the reality of God. So that means what are God's thoughts? Okay, so, so, so 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is saying that in this, um, he's diff he thinks differently than we do. So if we come to something and say, well, that's true, God is saying his, the truth that he's trying to relate to us is on a different plane, a different level of understanding. And the only way we can hear from God is to have that humility to listen to him. That's the only way we can do it. So, um, hold on just a quick second here. I think I've seen something. Uh, okay. All right, so back to, to where we were in our notes. Um, so, so truth is... That 5589 should be something that we don't forget, right? This is when we're thinking of his thoughts and our thoughts, right? And because we, we, we tend to think our thoughts are important, are more important than God's thoughts. We, we tend to, to, to think that our thoughts hold more sway, more prominence. But we have to begin to start thinking that God's thoughts are higher. He's just telling us right here in these two verses that not only, you know, you're close, your, your thoughts are not close to God, but they're far different than what God is, his thoughts are. And because of your thoughts being different, your ways are different. How different? How much different? Uh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways Higher than your ways and my thoughts. Higher than your thoughts. It's not even close. So, well, wow, what is so different from God's thinking to our thinking? Well, first of all, we're born, remember, dead in our transgressions and sins. Like the rest, we're by nature objects of wrath. Even our thoughts are infected by sin in this world. And the ruler of this world who has control over the things of this world. So we have to say that it's not just different, but drastically 
different, drastically. It's drastically different from man's view of truth. And then point D, point D, by the truth, right? So we're looking at that phrase, sanctify them by the truth. And what are we referring to when we say by the truth? And I say, I must give the textual answer. Your word is truth. So if somebody says, sanctify them by the truth. And if someone said, well, what is truth? He explains it. Your word is truth. Now, even though we're getting into the next phrase of it all, you could say, oh, you're getting ahead of yourself because we're going to talk about your word is truth in point number three. But we must at least give the answer, what is truth? Your word is truth. That's, that's how we ought to see that. It is important that we, we see it. That's the te- what we would call a textual answer. If, if the answer is given right there in Scripture then we have to pay attention to it. And that's what we've done. We just want to make sure we acknowledge that your word is truth when we say to sanctify them by the truth. In other words, is there a means by which we should be sanctified? Is there a material by which God is saying um, that we are to be set apart unto, right? That we are consecrated or dedicated to. And it is a a reference to the truth. And what is truth? Your word is truth. And why did I say about uh, truth is dispensationally? Uh, it's revealed through successive dispensations. I mean, just as a, a glaring example, Israel was under the law. The church is not under the law, which was... A huge controversy in the early church whether the church would be under the law or under uh, under grace as it were and uh, it is clear that the Mosaic law is not going to be used for salvation or our way of life we are not to follow the Mosaic law in the church so th- those things are very apparent that dis- two different dispensations of the way God is ruling over his household is different. We, we should acknowledge that. That it is different. It's not the same. And if I were to try to teach you about all the things the Mosaic Law said and how uh, I'm in, trying to get you to understand and do those things, that would be incorrect. That would certainly be incorrect because I would be dispensationally uh, applying scriptures that don't apply to us. It's apparent. It's a simple one for us to see. But not simple for everybody. Just know, some people think they're under the Mosaic Law as well. So point E, we are to be consecrated, dedicated, and set apart unto the Father according to or by the truth as revealed in the Word. And this is, I mean, if you if you think about this, this is an important point, and I think we're going to have to find a place to stop here, and I see it's coming up soon. So uh, after point F, then we probably will take a break, and we'll resume with the rest of this next week. So if we're to be consecrated, dedicated, or which is the sanctifies, what sanctified means, by means of the truth, and what is truth? Your word is truth. So uh, 
we already came to that, but in point E, it's according to or by the truth as revealed in the word. Now, words on the paper are not just what God has given us as assets. And when we say we're consecrated, in other words, our life is about what God has revealed to us in the word. If it's not in the word, then it is not something that God uh, requires of us because we believe that the word is complete. We'll come to that a little later. The word is a completed message that God needs to give to man. He doesn't have to continue giving it over and over to successive generations. He has his word written for all time. And before it was complete, I mean, it's over probably... 15, 1,600 years before God completed his word. So it's over time, it was completed. But now it's complete. We have the Bible uh, in our hands. And it, we, it's not going to be more that God is going to bring to it. It's not going it, to... It's complete, we should say. It's complete revelation to man. So when we say we are consecrated or set apart unto the Father, according to or by means of the truth, it is as it is revealed in the word. We already just made the point that all of the word does not apply to us, even though it is beneficial for us. For instance, uh, we could read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and, and all of that, right? How it goes in Genesis, what happened to Adam, what happened to the woman, what happened to Cain and Abel. what have, We got all of that from Old Testament. So if I say, oh no, that doesn't apply to us. Yes, it does. It is for our learning. But as far as our way of life and what we ought to do and how we should conduct ourselves as those who are in Christ, God has special revelation for us. Special revelation. We're going to cover that as well in more detail of how we ought to live as those new creations in Christ, those who are not of this world, uh, those who have their citizenship in heaven. All of that will be uh, given to us. And guess what? It's in writing. Just like the Mosaic Law for was a life for an Israelite was there, defined in the Word, so it is with this new revelation that was hidden in God. It's now revealed to us. And, write, and, and given to us in writing as well. So point F. Truth is defined and limited by Jesus as he established the church and its foundation. So for that, we just look at John 16, 12 through 15. So um, headed to John 16. 12 through 15, classic verses that we have covered already. And Jesus has been saying from 14 and 13, from really 13 on, chapter 13, that uh, the spirit of truth is coming. He's coming. When he comes, this is what's going to happen. He will tell you things, all this. But this verse is definitive. So verse 12, I have much more to say to you. What do you mean? He's been telling them a lot already. He has been giving them instruction about what's going to happen when he leaves. 
Uh, I know they were bent out of shape. They were emotional about that. But he says, there was another in 16 that says, it is good for you that I'm going. Because when I'm going, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, which is going to be a benefit to you. And the disciples just did not understand that at first. But as time went on, as they got it, they fully got to Jesus' point. So point F is telling us that Jesus has limited what he means when he talks about truth. So in 17, when Jesus says, sanctify them by your uh, the truth, your word is truth, he's going to define what he means. He's not saying that they ought to be uh, Israelites. He doesn't talk about the Mosaic law in that discourse at all. Truth is related to what's going to happen as he establishes the church. Right? He established the church and its foundation. So the disciples were that foundation. They were chosen for this purpose. And so as we read verse 12, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes. So that's Pentecost, when the spirit of truth came. That's, that's when that happened. So the, he's got a lot more. I would say Jesus told him a little bit for him to have much more to say. He didn't tell him a lot. He told him a little. He just told them enough for them to have the expectation that there was going to be more. Now, what he already told them caused their brows to wrinkle up and, and they were concerned. But he had a lot more to say to them, more than they can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, Pentecost, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you all that belongs to the father is mine that is why i said the spirit will receive from what is what he will make known to you a lot of words there but jesus limits what truth is He's not telling them that they ought to be under the Mosaic Law. He's saying that the truth that they have is going to be unique. And as we're going to see, it's going to be out of this world. So we're, we'll come more to that next week. Hopefully this is a juncture that we could stop and not be too confusing. But hopefully we'll get back to this same thought next week and we'll continue in this chapter and uh, this prayer that Jesus is uh, offering to the Father on our behalf. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had. Uh, we're grateful for so many things. One of the things is that you called us. You chose us in him before the creation of the world. And we could not have understood what that meant or grappled with that in any way humanly speaking but we are come we have come to a place where we're understanding what it means to be sanctified or set apart for your purposes and we're as we think about 
that you have a plan and your plan is moving forward in this world. We are privileged to be a part of this plan and to take our place in the battle. So, Father, I pray for the church, wherever they are, whatever nation they belong, they're in, that they belong to, uh, that they happen to be uh, serving in. We pray for the church universal. We also pray for our local church, Word is Truth Christian Church, that uh, we will be sanctified, walk in truth, come to know who you are, come to know what you've called us to be, our, our destiny in Christ. So all of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.